Hello, and welcome to Doc Tell Me More, my podcast where I take an in-depth look at documentaries. My name is Mike. I'm your host. This is episode 56 of Doc Tell Me More. And as always, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Doc Tell Me More and supporting this podcast, whether this is the first time you've listened to an episode or whether um, you've been with me the whole way. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Like I say at the beginning of every episode uh, of Doc Tell Me More, what this podcast is about is I am a big documentary guy. I love watching documentaries. And what I'll do is I'll watch a documentary and then we'll, uh, in this ep- in an episode of Doc Tell Me More, we'll talk about the content of that documentary a little bit. We'll go in a little more in depth, talk about things that were not mentioned in the um in the documentary and talk about things to a little bit more in-depth level as well. Um, you can, before I get any further, I am on Mastodon, that social media platform, and, and you can give me a follow at DocTellMeMore at Mastodon.world. Give me a follow and I will give you a follow back. I post um, my episodes, also post some just some random facts about different uh um, things about my documentaries, or just facts in general about sports and history, which are my two major interests, which is usually what Doc Tell Me More is about, a sports documentary or a history documentary. Again, you can go back and look at some of my past work, um, different documentaries like Ken Burns' Baseball, Ken Burns' Civil War, um, and not just, obviously, Ken Burns, um, also stuff on The Voice, which is about women getting the right to vote. And my most recent episode, which is on the great football player, Johnny Bright. So typically in, in Doc Tell Me More, I go in-depth on one documentary. You know, I've had series where I've gone through, you know, parts four or five or whatever on the documentary. Um, but I honestly really struggled this last month on what to talk about. And, it, and it's been about a month since my last episode. I really try to go every three weeks, not every every month. But this last month, I just struggled to find a documentary I wanted to go in depth in. And I just do watch docu- a lot of documentaries a month. That's pretty much what I watch outside of any, any sporting event that I watch. And while I found a lot of you know good, solid documentaries, I didn't really find any documentaries that I was like, yes, I really want to go in depth on. And I really struggled with that because um, yeah, I wanted to record an episode and, and almost a month had come by and it was getting to the point where, hey, I needed to make another episode, but I could not find one documentary I really wanted to dig into. So what I decided to do for this month is there were a few documentaries I watched that I liked, um, but again, not so much for a full episode. So I just decided that in this episode, we're going to kind of touch on just three um, documentaries and, and do just kind of a quick discussion on each one. Um, they're in, the, I thought were pretty solid documentaries. Um, documentaries, I really encourage you to go watch if you get the chance. Um, documentaries we can learn something from. Documentaries I'd go a little bit in depth on compared to what um, was in the content. But also, again, it wasn't something I really felt I wanted to dive in super deep. Um, and we're going to try to hit about two or three quick things on each episode. Um, so a little bit different format this week. I hope that's okay with you. Um, and my hope is by next episode, 
uh, found a documentary that I really am excited about to go in depth on. And then we, we can do it a couple, an episode or a few episodes on that. But I didn't want to, you know, in case any of you are out there like living and dying by me recording an episode, um, I wanted to make sure I got some content out there for you guys to, to listen to. So, so anyways, a um, little bit of a different episode for Doc Tell Me More, but still it goes with the essence of Doc Tell Me More, which, where my hope is that you learn something in this episode um, and get maybe a little bit inspired to watch a documentary or two. So anyways, that's the format of this episode. And without further ado, let's get to our first documentary. So the first documentary I want to highlight is called American Buffalo, which is on PBS by Ken Burns. And, and as a lot of you know, I have done a few episodes on uh, a Ken Burns' documentary. I think he's a phenomenal um, documentarian. Um, and so a lot of his stuff is on PBS. And, uh, and so I encourage you to... Um, Again, watch all of his documentaries, but including this one on the Amer American Buffalo is what it was called. And it's actually a pretty recent documentary. It did come out this year in 2023. I really think it came out in the last month or two. And so the documentary explores the history of the American bison in North America, um, its relationship with Native Americans, their decline and rise. Um, like I said, re really fascinating. I'm usually not someone that enjoys documentaries about oh I guess animals like I'm not someone that watches like a, the nature channel um, you know and there's different things about that but this was this was really interesting and so just a, a couple things that I really found fascinating and learned about in this documentary the first was I didn't realize how um, widespread the American bison was in North America now, being a history person like I am, um, I, I knew that there was just a, a ton of bison. And, and if you know anything about like the Lewis and Clark expedition, they really talked about how buffalo are just so widespread you know, throughout the West. And I knew there were enormous herds in the West, but I didn't realize how um, pretty much they were, they were not just in the West, but they were just completely all over what is now the United States. Um, so Buffalo or the bison, the American bison, they were actually as far east as New York, Virginia, and the Carolinas. Um, as late as the 1700s, they are as far south as Florida, um, Mexico, um, if even, even into the 1800s. They were as far north as um, Canada, including Alberta, Saskatchewan, um, the Northwest Territories, and then they were as far west as Washington, California, Oregon, and even Alaska. So the American bison wasn't just kind of um, the west of the Mississippi River. They were all over the place, okay? And bison were a part of what would become every state except Maine, um, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. So just kind of the extreme northeast there. Um, didn't have bison, pretty much everywhere else was. And that was just kind of really fascinating to me. At one point, there were 30 million bison in North America. Some estimates even put it at over 60 million. But um, because of um, overhunting, they dropped to 325 in 1884. 
So just kind of imagine that, like, a hundred years earlier, in the late 1700s, there's 30 million, 40 million, 50 million bison in North America. And just a hundred years later, there are only 325. So just a huge, huge drop. Um, now, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, but um, Lewis and Clark mentioned viewing thousands at a time. So they would come upon 3,000 buffalo, 10,000 buffalo, 20,000 buffalo. At times, the bison completely blocked their path, and so they didn't have the ability to even proceed with their journey. So there's thousands and thousands of buffaloes at, um, back then, yet here in 1884, just 325. So just a huge drop. I think, I think a lot of you probably know this, um, but Native Americans really, um, of pretty much numerous tribes, relied on the bison for survival. So they would hunt the bison and from um, the carcasses, they would obviously get food, but they'd make clothing, shelter, jewelry, tools, and they, they never wasted anything. And because of this, a lot of the Americans really worshiped the bison because their existence, for the most part, was very much linked with them. Now bison were also a really important part of the ecosystem. Um, coexisting with other animals, helping grass and plants thrive. So basically how they live, which is in terms of rolling ar around in the prairies, um, you know, traveling, uh, rubbing up against different plants, they really help pollinate um, the grasslands. So they were in a really important part of the ecosystem as well. So again, I, I said they, they were pushed to extinction. Again, only 325 over a 100-year period. Um... And, and that's something I knew, but I, I really thought the big reason why they were pushed to extinction was because as the United States grew and um, essentially whites, for lack of a better term, um, white, white Americans um, pushed Native Americans out of their traditional homelands that they killed bison for their, their hides um, and and they took over the lands for cities and railroads. And I just kind of thought, well, because of that process, a lot of the American, or not the Americans, a lot of the bison were um, um, decimated. And, and there's a lot of truth to that, the quote, settling of the West. But this documentary points out, and this is probably the big main takeaway from this documentary that I would pass on to you, is that um, bison were purposely killed by the American government as a way to destroy Native Americans and their life. Because as I noted above, um, bison were such an important way of life to the Native Americans. They based a lot of their culture around them that um, people in the United States knew that if they wanted to get rid of Native Americans, get them all, take their land for themselves, for the United States, that if they killed the buffalo, um, that would essentially destroy them, the Native Americans. And presidents, including President Ulysses S. Grant, uh, many politicians and many high-up military officials um, did, were determined to kill the, the Native food source so they could displace the Native Americans. So hundreds of thousands of bison were killed by U.S. troops um, in order to accomplish this purpose. So it wasn't just hunters killing them for their hides and making money off of that, which which did happen. Um, 
there was a concerted effort to kill the bison in order to destroy Native American culture. And, and I think if you know your history, honestly, that worked. So in a hundred year period, they went down to three from to th just 325 bison. You know, where are they at now? Well, fortunately, to, to, to various conservation efforts, um, they're up to 500,000 right now. And it wasn't just one unified group that was pushing to conserve buffalo. There's private citizens who bought herds to keep them going. There's the American Buffalo Society and, and other different societies that help to um, keep the buffalo from going into extinction. And, and that I don't really want to go into that. I didn't think that was as interesting as what I, the other stuff I just shared with you about the American Buffalo. But over the course of the last 100 plus years, bison have grown, um, again, like I said, about half a million buffalo. Still a far cry from what it was, but they are no longer endangered. So kind of in summary here from this documentary of the American Buffalo by Ken Burns, and bison were really plentiful and important to the ecosystems and native culture. Um, and they were decimated, though, by the U.S. culture and, and a concerted effort by the U.S. government, they were destroyed in order, in the hopes of destroying native culture to take away their traditional homelands for the U.S. But the both the American bison and Native American culture is making a bounce back. Honestly, I really did enjoy the documentary. It's a, it's a, actually a two part documentary. Um, again, uh, I didn't necessarily want to do a whole series of docs on more on it. But a very nice documentary, interesting, learned a lot of things about history that I didn't know. So I certainly encourage you and, and recommend watching American Buffalo by Ken Burns. Alright, so documentary number two that I want to talk about is called Bye Bye Berry, which is on Amazon Prime. Um... This documentary focuses on Barry Sanders, so who is widely considered to be one of the greatest running backs of all time. Um, so again, my interests are sports and history, and kind of very, kind of very eclectic um, interest areas. So going here from looking at the American Buffalo, American Bison, and history there, going out of football, that's just who I am. So, as you guys know that by now, otherwise you probably wouldn't be listening to this documentary or this podcast. Like I said, this documentary focuses on Barry Sanders, who's widely considered one of the greatest running backs of all time. Um, you know, he played in, in college in the 80s and then played in the 90s in the NFL, and that's when I grew up, was in the 90s, and Barry Sanders, I remember watching growing up. Um, and again, I was, I'm, a, I'm a Chicago Bears fan. I know, I'm sorry. He can... He can Say your, um, uh, you know, give your thoughts and uh, prayers to me later, being a Bears fan. But anyways, well, watching Barry Sanders growing up as a, he played for the Detroit Lions. So he, you know, played against the Bears twice a year. Now Sanders abruptly retired after the age of 30, um, which really shocked everyone. And I do remember that when he retired, um, it was just, uh, just stunning because he was really expected to play a lot more years. Um, and the premise of the documentary is really to try to figure out why he retired when he didn't. Why did he retire at the height of his fame at 30? Why didn't he continue to play another three, four years? Um, you know, when, 
you see all the time people are just trying to hang on to their fame and fortune and he went out on top so that that was the whole purpose of this documentary so I'll get into where the, what the documentary came up with that in a minute but a couple things about Barry Sanders to know is um, the first thing is he probably had the greatest running back season in NCA history when he was in college. So Sanders played three years at Oklahoma State, and he actually sat behind future NFL Hall of Famer Thurman Thomas in his freshman year, and only accumulated a total of 928 rushing yards. So yeah, so at Oklahoma State at one time, um, had two future Hall of Fame running backs um, on their on their roster. Um, no, they they did not win their conference championship. They were in the Big Eight at the time. Uh, they finished fourth his freshman year, third his sophomore year, and third his uh, senior year. Um, this is at the time when Nebraska and Oklahoma ruled the Big Eight. And they would each of those teams won the conference. Of course, you know, they don't rule anymore because teams like Nebraska have to play actual teams now. That's I digress. But in Sanders' junior year, Thurman Thomas had left, and Sanders put up one of the greatest running back seasons of all time. He set college football records for 2,628 yards rushing, 3,428 all purpose yards, 234 points and 39 total TDs. This was in 1988, so you're talking like 35 years ago. He still holds the rushing record and total TD records. His other two records were now broken to 2015 and 2011. Now, it should be noted that Sanders' stats were just through 11 games played. Okay, So um, they, play, they play a couple more games now. Uh, Christian McCaffrey and Monte Monty Ball. Monty Ball played for Wisconsin. Christian McCaffrey played for Stanford. Obviously, still in the NFL as well. But those guys who broke those records at Barry Sanders actually played in 14 games um, when they broke Sanders' records. So Sanders played in three less games than those two guys. Imagine what he would have done. Um, had he played three more games. And on top of that, Barry Sanders was able to play in a bowl game that year. But back then, they don't count, they didn't count your bowl statistics in your season statistics. They do now. They didn't back then. So if you count his bowl statistics, Sanders actually rushed for 2,850 yards. What I find interesting about that rule, and they changed that rule, oh, I think 15 years ago where they said they were going to now start allowing you to count your bowl statistics and your season stats. I remember thinking to myself, but, but not if, if you, not prior to that. And I remember thinking to myself, why don't you just add the statistics of all the players that have played? Because that's not that hard to do, but whatever. Anyways, Barry Sanders still holds some crazy records for the single season um, rushing records, despite the fact it's been 35 years and despite the fact he, he played approximately three less games than these other guys. In that season, he had five 200-yard games. He scored at least two TDs in every game. He scored three touchdowns eight times. Um, he ended up winning the Heisman, obviously, which you should with those numbers. And he was, at the time, only the eighth non-senior to win the award. Um, we see it all the time with freshmen, sophomores, and juniors winning the Heisman now. 
Um, back then, though, it was very rare for a non-senior to win the award. So after his time at Oklahoma State, he was drafted by the Detroit Lions, which is where a large part of the documentary was about. Um, he entered the draft a year early after his junior year, which is really normal now, but wasn't really possible at that time. He couldn't leave early. Now, there was an exception made for Barry Sanders by the NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle because Oklahoma State was under investigation for different violations, and there was a chance that they weren't going to be on TV that next year because of the violations. So because that wasn't fair to Barry Sanders, Pete Rozelle, the commissioner, allowed him to enter the draft a year early as a junior. And actually a year after that, the NFL ruled that all juniors could now enter the draft, which is still true to this day. Was a really good draft. Um, you had um, Troy Aikman go number one. You had Deion Sanders go fifth. Derek Thomas, the great Kansas City linebacker, went fourth. Um, Barry Sanders went third to the Detroit Lions. Uh, Tony Mandarich, who's an offensive lineman at Michigan State, went number two. He's considered one of the biggest draft busts of all time. Um, I think the funniest thing, though, about the draft is they showed an interview of Deion Sanders um, when he got drafted. He got drafted by the Falcons, and Deion said he was really nervous that Detroit was going to pick him because Detroit wasn't really a good team. Um, and he said that if Detroit took him, he was going to ask for so much money that they'd have to put him on layaway, which I thought was just a hilarious quote and something only Dion can can do. <laughs> but um, so yeah, so they ended up drafting Barry Sanders. The Lions did, and this in in the Lions were not um, a really good team. And honestly, they're still one of a handful of teams that haven't been to a Super Bowl, despite the fact they've been around since. 1930, um, at the time of them drafting Barry Sanders, they had only gone to three playoff appearances since the 50s, and their last NFL championship was 1957. Again, that's before the Super Bowl started. So Barry Sanders um, was kind of expected to help them be competitive and win, and, and they did. Um, he would play for, for 10 years in the NFL, he led the league in rushing four times. It should have been fifth. He was only 10-yard chart of his, his rookie year, and he had been pulled from the game because the Lions were winning. And when his coach realized that Sanders was just 10 yards short of the rushing title, he asked Barry if he wanted to go back in, and Barry said, no, he's fine. He rushed for over 1,500 yards, which is really tough to do, five times. And over 1,400 two other times. So in seven of his 10 years, he rushed for over 1,400 yards. In his ninth season, his next to last season, he rushed for 2,053 yards. At that time, just the third running back to achieve the feat. He averaged 1,527 rushing yards a season. That is insane. And 99.8 yards per game. You know, we talk about if a running back can get over 100 yards in, in a game, that's impressive. He almost averaged 100 yards a game. Um, really, really good. I mean, really good, really crazy. So I think, number one, if you don't know much about Barry Sanders, you need to know he's one of the greatest running backs of all time. But two, the documentary went to the question of why did he retire? And this is where I thought the documentary pretty much failed. Now, when he retired, there was a lot of speculation that he retired because he was tired of losing. And... Um, he was able to help the Lions go to the playoffs 
five times while he was there, but they only won one playoff game. And so it was kind of assumed when he retired was that he was playing for a losing franchise and he was just his he was tired of playing for a losing franchise and his heart wasn't in doing all the things you got to do to be a professional football player because um, um, because he weren't winning. Now the documentary made it seem like we would get the real story, but the explanation was what I just said. He was just done playing. And part of that was because he was on a losing team and he didn't have the fire to continue to, to go on. Um, some of the players he played with earlier in his career, Detroit didn't want to re-sign him for agency. And so that too happened. Um, but it came down to he was just tired of losing. And he retired at the age of 30. Um, and so I, th- I did just, this was an okay documentary. I, I like most sports documentaries anyways, but I didn't really feel like it shed any new light on why he retired. And it was really disappointing that they kind of made a big deal about that, that, that we were going to learn something new, in my opinion. Um, the one crazy thing, the last thing I'll talk about about Barry Sanders is when he retired after 10 years, he was just 1,500 yards behind breaking Walter Payton's career rushing record at the time. As I said, he averaged, actually he's a little bit less than 1,500. As I said, Barry Sanders averaged 1,500 yards for his career. And so if he played another year and kept his average up, he would have broken Walter Payton's record. Even if he didn't break Walter Payton's record that next year, a lot of great running backs played until they were 34, 35. So if you give Sanders another four or five years, not only does he Blake break Walter Payton's record, he obliterates it. And that's why a lot of people were stunned that he retired too, because he was going to break the rushing record. Emmett Smith ended up breaking Walter Payton's record and is the current record holder at 18,355 yards. There's no doubt in my mind that if Sanders um, kept playing, um, he would have put that out of reach and Emmett Smith would have never broken the record. And maybe Barry Sanders gets to 20,000 career rushing yards. So, Barry Sanders, one of the greatest running backs of all time. Uh, if you don't know him, I encourage you to look him up. The third documentary that I watched, and I'm going to highlight here on Doc Tell Me More, is called Stamped from the Beginning on Netflix. Um, this is a documentary I started watching just because it was late one night, and I just saw the title, and I just started going. Um, I didn't really know really what it was about until I got into the documentary. So this is actually a documentary that's based off the book called Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. The book itself is the second most banned book on the American Library Association list, and so it is banned in a lot of places, although it is really well received. The author is Ibram Kendi, who has a PhD and African-American studies and is a historian and he is um, he founded the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University. So when I started this documentary I didn't really realize this was a pretty heavy topic Um, but once I kind of got about a third of the way into it and realized this was going to be some pretty heavy material I decided that I would I would keep watching it. Um, It's a pretty provocative 
and challenging documentary. It pushes back on some historical narratives of African Americans and essentially discusses how society has made African American second class citizens. And like it starts off the documentary with the question of what is wrong with black people is what <laughs> is what the docu uh, the, the producer of the documentary says. It eventually ends with the, the phrase nothing is wrong with black people. The documentary commentators are all African American, um, which I think the perspective of this documentary was is that they're trying to have their voice heard and not have um, people who are white speak for them. Now, before I get any further and discuss this documentary, as I've said this before, for those of you that have followed me, I, I am not black, I am, I am white. Um, so I, I, I'm not going to be able to really critique the content in the documentary or be able to give, I think, any sort of intelligent commentary on, on it. Because I'm white, I am not going to um, criticize any of the African Americans' points on it, on, on the history of their uh, culture and their race, because I don't think I can do that from my perspective as someone who is white. I did enjoy the documentary, and I did enjoy, and I like being challenged by new ideas. And I think it's important for all of us to be open minded. So really my point of talking about this documentary is, hey, I encourage you to watch it. Um, but also I just want to share two interesting things from the documentary, which I, I then afterwards did confirm with research that, that this did happen. Um, so yeah, just, just this is a thought-provoking documentary. And the point of me talking about it is just to maybe pass on that thought provocation um, because I think, it, I think it's good society to do that. So one of the people they talk about in this documentary, which kind of talks about a part of the history of the United States, is to talk about Prince Henry of Portugal. Um, he was called Prince Henry the Navigator, um, though he wasn't called the Navigator until three centuries after his death. I don't know how you get a nickname 200 years after you die. But he was a principal part of the age of discovery and the development of Portuguese exploration. He sponsored numerous expeditions along the West African coast, which were not known at the time to a lot of Europeans, despite the fact there were a lot of people, native people to Africa living there with their different tribes and, and languages, etc. Now, humans have enslaved each other for pretty much probably close to since the beginning of people. Um, but slavery wasn't um, just people who were white enslaving black people, for lack of a better term. I don't, I'm not trying to say that in a... Or people of color is a better way to say that, I'm sorry. Um, however, Prince Henry's captains on some one of his missions were the first Europeans to bring... African slaves back to Europe. They kidnapped people, some 12 men or women, in one of their first years and brought them back to Portugal. And they really grew in size over the years. And in the next 15 years, uh, 20,000 slaves, if 
from Africa, people of color, were brought to Lisbon. And so while slavery existed before Prince Henry, one of Prince Henry's legacies is that he is really one of the founders of the slave trade. And one of the reasons why African slavery became very popular for people who enslaved other people is that um, obviously if, if a slave was from Africa, they were black, you could tell they were in slavery despite the color of their skin. Whereas before, um, the Western European slave market was mostly people enslaving people from Eastern Europeans, like Eastern European Slavs is what they call it, which is where the word slave comes from. But because they were white, they could easily escape and blend into society, whereas people from Africa, if they were a slave, a person of color could not blend into white society. So a lot of that goes back to Prince Henry. Kind of along with Prince Henry here, um, 20 years after he organized the slave trade, um, the king of Portugal commissioned Gomez de Zuara to write a biography of Prince Henry. Um, and from this, docu this document, from this book, this biography, Zuhara really invented the term, the concept of African race, where um, despite the fact there are different ethnic groups and different tribes and different languages and different cultures in Africa, he lumped all those ethnic groups and cultures into a single group of people, essentially inventing blackness, okay? And it's kind of the same way that colonizers who came over to the United States, they, and even a lot of people still do to this day, they lump Native Americans, what they termed Indians at the time, into one people. Well, but again, as we know, there was various different Native American tribes with various different cultures, you know. And so they did the same thing here with the African, um, African people, people who lived in Africa at the time. Now, Zuara defended the actions of enslaving um, Africans by describing them as inferior people and beast-like, and that by putting them into slavery, they were Christianizing them to and saving their souls. And so his ideas became a bestseller. They kind of naturalized racial hierarchies of different races being superior to another. And he also described Africans as beastly. So a lot of his ideas were used as justifications for why it was okay to continue having slavery over the next 400 years. People would say, well, the Africans, they, they are not intelligent enough. They are not um, civilized enough. And we need to enslave these people um, so we can make them you know, better people, for lack of a better term. So a lot of that goes back to Prince Henry, which I did not know about. That was something. And, and again, I've, I've, you can go read about him yourself. You can go look at your different sources yourself. But that was something very new that I did not know about. The second thing I want to talk about um, in, from this documentary is Bacon's Rebellion, which is not about a battle for breakfast food. But it, um, it was an armed rebellion in 1676 and 1677 by Virginian settlers in the colony of Virginia. Um, again, this was when England um, controlled North America. This is 100 years before the United States. But in this rebellion, Virginian settlers led by Nathaniel Bacon asked the Virginia colonial governor, William Berkeley, um, to um, help drive Native Americans out of Virginia, and the governor refused. 
And I'm not going to get into the whole rebellion and how it happened. You can, that's out of the, the scope of what I want to do here, but you can look it up as well. You can Google it. What was really unique about this rebellion was that there was an alliance between African slaves who were, had been brought over and white indentured servants who, very similar to slaves, um, but the indentured servitude was almost a form of slavery. And so you had whites who were in this type of slavery and you had African-Americans, Africans who had been brought over, who were in slavery. And they actually allied together in this rebellion against the white wealthy elite. Um, and that put a lot of fear into the white landowners because they were controlling things and are at the top of the hierarchy in society. They were really concerned that... Um, this would happen again, that the, these groups of the poor people in society would continue to band together. So in order to keep this from happening again, they created the Virginia Slave Codes of 1706. And there's like over 40 of them. What you just need to know from these codes is that these codes gave more rights to people, to the white indentured service servants and imposed more strict laws upon people who were from Africa who were black. And so white landowners gave the white indentured servants privileges just because they were white. They were um, white indentured services were able to eventually work out of their servitude, get land, get money, and then they could own slaves themselves. They were, whereas the slaves from Africa, the black slaves were um, essentially never able to get out of slavery. Okay. And at some point, there was a chance that if you were a white indentured servant, you could eventually work your way out and then own a, a, um, a slave. And that could have been someone that you allied with in, in that rebellion. And that's just kind of how messed up things got. So these codes essentially separate the races. They almost created, you know, I mentioned that... Um, Prince Henry and that author Gomez kind of created what was called blackness, which is what this documentary talks about. These slave codes and this Bacon's Rebellion almost created whiteness, but it really separated the races. So it wasn't anymore you were poor, rich land or whatever, and now you were either white or you were black. So those are two interesting things from that documentary that really challenged myself. Again, I thought it was an interesting documentary. It really challenged my understanding of different events. I do think in society, it's important to research different viewpoints that allows us to grow. And I encourage you to do that as well. Again, I don't think, again, as I said earlier, I'm not an expert as someone who's white on African-American culture, or as I mentioned earlier, Native American culture. And so I was just trying to give some Again, some, some new material or some interesting facts from those do that documentary. And certainly wasn't trying to be insensitive with anything the, w the way I worded it. So just know I'm, I was trying to just uh, pass on some new material to the listeners out there. And I really encourage you to watch those documentaries and draw your own conclusions as well. Um, and continue to grow as an educated society. So those are three documentaries that I've... I want to highlight again the American Buffalo by Doc Tell Me More or by Doc Tell Me More. 
<laughs> by Ken Burns. Maybe I should do a documentary about something. I don't know. Um, bye, Barry, bye, or bye, bye, Barry, bye, bye, Barry Sanders in Stamp from the Beginning. It's kind of a history of racism in the world. So different type of episode. Again, I, I really prefer to talk about one topic and my plan for my next episode is to do that. Um, by the next time, hopefully in three weeks, when I talk to you next, I would have found a documentary. I really want to go in depth on maybe even a two or three parter. Um, but I want to get you some material. So, and I, and I just kind of knew at this point that I was still a few, at least a few weeks away from finding a documentary and recording an episode. So I just wanted, I didn't, I didn't want to wait six weeks. So I thought I'd put this episode together and and maybe you guys enjoyed it. Maybe maybe you guys liked it better. I don't know. You guys can let me know. Again, you can find me at DocTellMeMore at Mastodon.World. Um, again, my, my hope is to find a new topic for our next episode. But we'll just wrap up here. And uh, thank you so much for listening. I truly appreciate it. And until next time, we'll talk to you later.